church. And so a church ought to demonstrate these things. Paul here, of course, is speaking to us both individually and corporately. He wants to see these things a reality in each person's life. And as they are a reality in each person's life, they then are demonstrated collectively as we gather together. That only makes sense. And so in verse 12 of Colossians 3, Paul says the following, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of so. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These virtues flow out of our election, God choosing us, him loving us before the foundation of the world, setting apart for himself a particular and peculiar people who are identifiable by these virtues that are played out in reality in real time in the context of what we further read, verse 13, bearing with one another, the idea of forbearance, and forgiving each other, the idea of forgiveness. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule or control or umpire in your hearts, to which indeed you were called to one body, and be thankful. And the focus today, verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So Paul here continues again with these imperatives that are so important that flow out of the doctrine that he has been teaching to us throughout this important epistle. So when we look at verse 16, it makes sense that Paul would progress into the context of of the word, the written word of Christ, God's word to us through his revealed word. And so Paul says to us in verse 16, let. There's that word let again. We saw that word in verse 15. And so the idea again is that we are doing these things in response to our salvation. We are doing these things as a consequence of our election. These things flow out of those whom God has redeemed. Now, of course, in life, there's an ebb and flow to things. We don't always do these things perfectly. We don't always do them consistently, but we ought to be doing them in a manner that demonstrates the reality of the fact that God indeed has saved us. If there's an absence of these things, if you're not known in some respect by these virtues... And bearing in mind that these virtues are the product and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we've talked about that, then then that gives demonstration to the reality of your conversion. But if you're known to be otherwise, if you're known to be a person who doesn't demonstrate these virtues, yet is in the church, then there is a serious problem with the state of your soul. And I would encourage you, as Scripture does, to examine yourself to make certain that you're in the Word. Peter would even say in Second Peter chapter 1 that we are to have comfort in the demonstration of these things in our lives as an affirmation of our election and that these things ought to be increasing. Again, this is all out of love for Jesus Christ. This is not because we're trying to further save ourselves, to make ourselves more saved. For us to say that as we do these things on an increasing level, God, look at me, I'm doing more, I'm doing better. You must love me so much more now. Friend, you cannot be loved any more than you were the moment God saved you. 
And that love never, is very, it never varies. It doesn't vacillate. It's not like us. He doesn't love us that way. God's love is always perfect. It's always complete. It's always consistent. But it's certainly he wants us to live in a way that demonstrates the reality of our conversion and our love for him. Anything otherwise would be contrary to Scripture. And so Paul, again, begins this verse, this passage, like he did with verse 15. Let. And let something. So when we let something, we're permitting. There's like a permission. There's an engagement with it. We, we allow something to happen. And so the idea here is that one who is the redeemed of Christ will naturally be inclined to be engaged in this thing that he's describing. In verse 15, it's about peace. It's about engaging with each other in the context. Indeed, Paul would even say in verse 15, you were called to this very end. And so too that theme flows into verse 16. And so verse 16 again begins with this command language. Let, permit, engage in. And so Paul here is, in, is concerned, and he is saying to these believers, and again, keeping in mind that there's a false teacher in this church, so he's taking them back to the sure anchor of God's word. He wants to make certain that in the face of the error that is being propagated by the false teacher, that they are anchored in the word of God. Because the word of God is the truth, and it's objective, and it's fixed, and it's firm, and it's consistent, and it never vacillates, and it never wavers, because it is of God, and it bears the characteristics of God, its author. And so he wants to make certain, I think this is incredibly important for the church today, he wants to make certain that these Colossi believers are anchored in the sure and steady word of God. The church needs to hear this passage today. Our church needs to hear it, and the world needs to hear it in the context of the broader church, the evangelical church around the world, because we are being inundated with error. We are being bombarded with false teaching. We, like the church in Colossae, have false teachers within our midst. People who have risen up within the church, not this church in particular, but in the broader context of the evangelical church, who are leading the church into error because they are not letting the word of God to richly dwell within them. They have abandoned the word of God. And when we abandon the word of God, we we begin to look into ourselves. We begin to marshal our lives based upon our own felt needs and our own perceptions and our own dealings. Let's go back to the book of Judges for a moment. And let's be reminded of something. And let's see how quickly things can, can fall. Judges chapter 2. Verse 10. Now, we understand that, that the Israel in the book of Judges has just, they, they've come into the promised land. They are receiving their inheritance. Chapter 1 of Judges and the latter part of Joshua begins to explain the process of the different tribes possessing what God had given to them. 
Some do it, some don't. We understand that. We spend a lot of time in the book of Judges. But this is a good reminder of what happens when we abandon the Word of God and how quickly it can happen. Now, you would think with all the things that they have been recalling and remembering, all the wonderful benefits that God had bestowed upon them, the miracles that had been played out in front of their very eyes, the things that they had witnessed and seen, that they would be consistent and there would be an effort to continue the propagation of the wonders of God's mercy and grace to them. But as soon as Joshua dies, what happens? Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So those who had lived with Joshua... And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. It's interesting to me today that in the church we're seeing an abandonment of the preaching of God's word. It's being supplanted by a lot of TED Talks and performances and plays and music and all sorts of other things. The word of God is being eclipsed. We're not being reminded of those things that God has done for us that then cause us and make us want to be engaged in his word. Paul's predicate for all of this is that, my goodness, as the redeemed of Christ, you would want to know all that God has done for you. How could you not be consumed with that? How could you not be overcome by the wonder of so great a salvation? You, you must be people who have an appetite for the word of God as such that you cannot get enough of it. Indeed, you crave it, you want it, you need it. You cannot live without it. Every Sunday is a joy to you as God's word is opened up to you. You revel in the idea of being with the redeemed of Christ. You're thinking to yourself, how good is it that God allows me to do this, that he has called me into this life? That's what happens when the word of God is preached. Yet when we disengage that process and it becomes about us, then our focus becomes ourselves and not the wonders and the work of Christ. And we forget about him. And as a consequence of that, we begin to incorporate into the church the things of the world, like we saw this past week with the Gospel Coalition indicating that it's okay for a Christian to embrace same-sex marriage. This is absurd, but this is what happens when you don't allow the Word of God to richly dwell, to abide. That word dwell, as we will see, is a picture of one that lives within. It's a house picture. It's a house metaphor. Paul is using the idea of one who lives abundantly within his own abode. This is what happened to the generation after Joshua. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Verse 11, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served the Baal and the Ashtoreth. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into their hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. And there's a consequence to this. The church is going to be purified. The church is to be pure and chaste like a bride. That is the picture that we're given in Scripture. So bear this in mind. Keep this in mind as we think about the significance and the importance of what Paul is giving us a directive to be engaged in. 
When we see people around the world, and my concern, and I communicated with other people about this week, this idea of what the Gospel Coalition and others of their ilk and their heresy are, are advocating is going to become the mantra of the church. It is an easy position to take because it is no position. You don't identify sin. You don't say it's sin. You don't confront your neighbor in the context of that. You just engage and embrace in whatever the culture has to offer. That's nonsense. It's like the Christians of late who aren't rejoicing over the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Christians apologizing for it, trying to be winsome and, and, and somehow appealing to the world to make them okay with everything. This is utter nonsense. And when we do what we're commanded to do in Scripture, and again, we do these things, again, this is important. The predicate for this is that the elect will do this. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to consider for a moment that for Paul, it is axiomatic. It necessarily follows that the elect of God will do this. There's no question. There's no wiggle room. There's no alternative. There's no plan B here. This is a consequence of God saving you. And when he saves you, he makes you a people unto himself. He sets you apart. He sets you aside. Peter uses very vivid language in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he talks about the idea of how we are a royal priesthood. We are pilgrims and sojourners. We are being built into the very foundation that is Christ. We are blocks within the temple of Christ. And so much so that our identity is to be incorporated into that and not within the world. But yet the church today wants to be so appealing, so, so engaged, let's say. Oh, it sounds so, so lofty when we can engage in these kinds of, 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 of language where we appear to be uh, acquiescing in love. I heard a guy talking this week. I nearly threw up in my truck as I'm driving down the road. And he's talking about how, how as an expression of Christian love, we are, we are able to engage in everything that the culture offers us, and including the idea of same-sex marriage and transgenderism and, and, and drag queens and churches. We, we, we embrace that out of love for them. That's an offense to God. And as we see, what did God do with the nation of Israel when they forsook him? He turned them over to the plunderers. He judged them. And what's going to happen to the church is that we're going to be turned over to the plunderers and we're going to be taken over by people like Russell Moore and Beth Moore and those of that ilk who are engaged in this nonsense, in this flat-out blasphemous error that they're engaged in. We have to take a stand. And so when we see a passage like this, in Colossians chapter 3, we need to be very attentive to it and to be making certain that we're understanding the idea of what is, is incorporated into it. The idea here is that those who have been redeemed by God, placed in Christ, are going to do this. The natural consequence is that I am going to have the word of Christ richly dwelling within me. And I'm going to be engaged in that process. 
This is not a let go and let God. This does not happen by osmosis. You just don't do this because it just kind of flows into you. Now, granted, the Holy Spirit works within us and gives us a desire, but we're engaged here. You're letting, right? So when you let, you're the one who's letting, right? You, that, that's you doing it, correct? So this is you, you in action. Pastor, what do Christians do? Well, here you go. Verse 16 is something a Christian does. So we understand then Paul says to us in the face of a false teacher in the church, again, let's context is important. Significant that Paul is, is going to be communicating to these people about the idea of something other than a person talking to them, dwelling within them. It's the word. Now, think about it for a minute. What did they have? They, they didn't have the New Testament. They had Paul's letter. They had copies of others' letters that Paul had written. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 will make reference to the fact that Paul's letters apparently are in circulation in some context. People are reading them and hearing them. So you're beginning to have the formulation of that. It's predominantly, though, what? The Old Testament. And as we said this morning, it's significant that, that, that when Paul talks about this, he's comfortable with the idea of a generation of people who are going to have in their hands predominantly the Old Testament as being sufficient to point them to Jesus Christ. That there's enough information in the Old Testament, the shadows and the types and all of it given to them indicate Jesus Christ and speak to the work and person of Jesus Christ. Just like Christ did with the woman at the well. We talked about that this morning. He was making reference to his fulfillment of the prophecy from Ezekiel. That he indeed is the living water of which Ezekiel spoke. He is the temple. And so for Paul here, he's, he's driving these people back into a fixed and firm foundation. They need that right now. They have been attacked by the false teacher. They have error within the church. It's significant error, too. It's a complex heresy. It's a blending of, of pagan mysticism, Judaism, legalism, asceticism, all sorts of like external words of knowledge issues, the worship of angels. This, this guy came in with a pretty complex program, and it appeared to be kind of knowledgeable and sharp, and there was some appeal to it, apparently. At the end of verse of chapter 2, Paul's saying to them, now, this may appear to have some semblance of wisdom, but it is of no earthly good, it's of no good to deal with the real issues that we face in the world with the flesh. And so what Paul is wanting us to make certain is that we are indeed anchored in the Word of God. Ask yourself that question. Are you anchored in the Word of God? Is it the arbiter? Is it what controls your life in the context of the decisions and choices that you make? Do you treasure it? Do you cherish it? Are you hiding it in your heart? David called it a lamp. It gave light to the path. It expo- what does light do? It exposes error. It exposes. So if you're out, we were just in, in New York camping. It gets dark at night in the Adirondacks. Debbie thought she heard something one night and said, go out and check and see what that is. (laughs) 
Of course, being the bold, brave husband that I am, I quickly leapt from the bed, grabbed the flashlight, and ran out the door. It was dark. Well, at first, the flashlight didn't come on, and I couldn't see, and I'm tripping over roots, and I'm twisting my ankle, and my foot hurts. Well, finally, the light came on. I had to shake it a little bit, and it came on, and and, and the light exposed the ground before me. It gave me the ability to walk forward cautiously and carefully, knowing where the, the holes were and possibly the bear that Debbie heard was lurking. Well, thankfully, it wasn't anything, just a noise on the road, apparently. I came back and assured her of that, and she has, was greatly comforted and fell quickly asleep. <laughs> I, of course, was up the rest of the night. <laughs> waiting to hear for the next thing that would come and consume us in the, in the inky darkness. So this is what we have the word for. And so Paul, understanding that, all those ideas, the lamp, the light, the exposing, and, and light exposes the path, the safe way to go. It exposes the harm and the error. This is what the word of God does for us. And so we as the believer, as the redeemed of Christ, treasure the word for that. Not only does it tell me about the work and person of Jesus Christ, which Paul will emphasize here in the language that's used, it's interesting how he frames this, but it does give us guidance and helps us to avoid the error that is often associated with the teaching of Scripture. As good Bereans, you are called to this responsibility. It is you who are letting the Word dwell. I can't do that for you. You don't get to say to yourself, well, as long as, the pa- as long as the word is dwelling richly in the pastor, we're okay. It's all good. No. Remember, so the directive, the command is to you. Now, what's interesting is that the command is to you individually, which has an impact on us corporately. So in a church, when this is taking place, what happens then is that we have then an entire body of people. So... 150 or so people here today. You got, so all of us together are engaged in this. That has a big impact, doesn't it? That has an impact here. And importantly, the idea that Paul is going to be communicating to us is that as this word is dwelling within us richly, it impacts how we relate to each other and ultimately will then also make us more visible, more glorifying, more radiant as we reflect the wonder of the work and person of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot in that word let, isn't there? You didn't imagine that there could be so much with just a little word like let. But there you have it. The idea here too for us is is a neat picture that when we talk about letting the word of Christ richly dwell, we, we have Uh, we have a sense of ever keeping the well of God's grace bubbling up within us. How, How is it that on a daily basis, weekly basis, I can be amazed by my salvation? What is going to be the primary source for that? Now, granted, you may have relationships with people that are encouraging to you. You may have people who talk to you continuously about how wonderful it is that God saved them and how glorious it is that God has redeemed them and things of that nature. And that causes God's grace to kind of bubble up within us. But that's a secondary source. Our primary source for that is the Word of God. 
I meet Christians sometimes who are, who are down, who are, who, are, who are distracted, who seem to be consumed with the carking cares of the world. And my, my question in the back of my mind is, are they allowing the Word of God to richly dwell within their lives? That is certainly an antidote to these things. It ought to be where we go first when we're down, when we're challenged, when we're, when we're frustrated. This ought to be our, our sweet abode, if you will, our, our safe harbor. We all talk about safe places now, safe spaces. Well, the Christian's been given a safe space from the beginning of the world called the Bible and Christ, and we have it. And so, Paul here is, is focused on the idea of a people who are consumed with the Word of God in such a way that God's grace is continually bubbling up within us. Not in a stupid, silly way. I'm not talking about being, being nonsensical like some people can be out of control and looking for experiences. Isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't give them an experience to cause the grace of God to bubble up within their lives? He just gives them the good old Bible. The good old, steady, consistent, objective Word of God. The treasure of Scripture. Paul knew, of course, that experience would be temporary and fleeting. We're always looking for new experiences, right? Wall Street knows that. Madison Avenue knows that. So they constantly market to us on the basis of new and better experiences. The new and better Chevy Silverado. The, the new and better Ping Golf Club. The, the new and better golf ball. That, that even if you gave it to Pittman, still wouldn't hit it straight, right? <laughs> the new and better everything. Well, no, experience is not what drives us. It is something that is fixed. And so we see then that the letting is related to something that is objectively fixed. It is the word of Christ. The word of Christ. And so Paul here says, if you want to keep the well of God's grace bubbling up within us, how do you cultivate the habitual gratitude of which he speaks at the end of verse 15. How is it that I can be always thankful? As he indicates at the end of verse 15, and be thankful. How does that work? Well, it works through the word of God. He steers us directly into the path of an answer with this very next imperative. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And so he wants to make certain then that the answer to the question that many would have asked, well, how can I be thankful, Paul? I'm sure that some may have asked that. He says, here it is. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. In this expression, the word of Christ is, is significant and important for us to be, to be mindful of. Um, and again, it's a phrase that, that gives us further insight to the Christological emphasis of this epistle. Um, and so Paul here directs our attention to something that is fixed and true. And this, this phrase, the word of Christ, is, is, a, is, is, is a unique statement, um, only found in the New Testament, of course. Um, and it says, this is certainly something that we, sh- Paul saying that there is something that we should be looking to 
and that is this fixed body of truth. Now, the word of Christ, what are we talking about? The things that Christ actually said or that which contains those things which he taught? Well, basically, it's both ideas. It is the idea of the word that speaks about Christ. It contains with it the idea that we are, cons- that we are focused upon that which communicates to us the content of the teaching of Christ which is basically what we have now in, in the Bible that we have, and primarily the New Testament. Of course, the Old Testament is important. We're not going to unhitch from it, but certainly we're going to look to it to help us better understand um, the fulfillment of all the things of which it spoke in Jesus Christ. We want to be able to look at that. That gives us great confidence. I like to be, read the book of Ezekiel and know that Ezekiel is speaking to me of something that has been f- fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That, that Ezekiel writing of something that he did not yet know in reality is now my reality. That's a great comfort to me. That's a huge comfort to me, and it should be to you as well. And so what Paul is saying here is basically, let the word of Christ, those things which teach us about Christ and speak to us of Christ and communicate the content of what he did to us. In essence, Paul is saying, preach to yourself. Preach, preach the content of God's Word. The gospel message is what Paul has in focus here, as expounded from the Scripture, which at that time would have been the Old Testament, but now would include the New Testament. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? I'm, I'm, I'm really struck by that. Again, this is what Paul would have been telling them. Get back into the Word. Get back into Daniel. Get back into Ezekiel. Get back into Amos and to Joel. And, to, and read those things. And, 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 and let that richly dwell within you. And it's interesting to me that in his mindset that you can read Ezekiel and Daniel and Joel and Amos and Habakkuk and, and Nahum and, and Jonah, and that causes you to be thankful that that's a source for God's grace to bubble up in your life. Because all of those things in those books speak to me of somebody who's coming and that's been fulfilled. This would have been a reality to them too. Paul would have understood that. They would have understood that. He has already talked to them of all the wonders of Christ. All of those books that we've just made reference to in the Old Testament affirm all the things that Paul said is true of Christ back in Colossians 1 and 2. All those things that we looked at are affirmed there. In Isaiah, in the Psalms, in Genesis, all of it. And so, Paul is directing them back to the content of God's Word. And today, if Paul were to have written this today, he would have said the canon of Scripture, the the content of the entirety of Scripture, which we now have. So how much better is that for you? Think about that for a minute. To whom much is given, much is expected. You've got all of it. They did it. Now, now again, let's, let's keep in mind the people that we're dealing with. These people are facing all sorts of very unique challenges. You may say, well, Pastor, yeah, you've talked about that a lot. Well, I'm not going to stop talking about it until we get out of the book of Colossians. And in the next book, I'm going to talk about it again because it was the same for them too. It's significant to me that that's where Paul is directing them. It's significant to me that Paul is not directing them to some program, some relief effort, some collective community endeavor, some help center. No, he's taking them back into the Word of God. 
That's where they go. This is where they go. And so Paul, very forcefully, directly, let, permit, grant, do the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And so we know what we're letting dwell. It's the word of Christ. So what's the next idea? The next idea is the issue of where it rests. Where, where does this word of Christ then sit in our lives? So when we think about this issue of dwelling, we can, we can look at the passage and say, let dwell. We can, we can take out those words in between, the word of Christ richly, and let's just think about for a moment, let dwell. So, so there's, the, there's the imperative. The object of the imperative is the word of Christ, which is dwelling richly. So we've got a lot of things to deal with in that context that we're not going to get to today. We're going to be in this passage for a little while. I'm, I'm sure you're gathering that now. So the idea here is that the word of Christ is we are commanded to let dwell in us. This, this occurs in the, in the present imperative form, and it contains the same type of force that Paul was using in verse 15. So as in verse 15, this present imperative form demands that action be taken repeatedly as a habit of life. Okay? So grammar matters. Sentence structure matters. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's writing in a form of Greek that would communicate that intent to us. And so so what he's saying then is that as a matter of life, as a habit of life, you are to be repeatedly engaged in allowing the word of Christ to richly dwell within you. That That is how you live. That is what a Christian does. That's, that's important, especially in a day and age when the word's being abandoned. It's unfortunate that the book Jesus Calling by the heretic that wrote it is almost beginning to eclipse the sale of Bibles. Now, now keep in mind, that book, this woman sat down under a tree and said that Jesus started talking to her and she started writing it down. So this is ex-cathedra, this is external, yet more people spend time in that tripe than they do in the Word. It's not, if you have the book, get rid of it, okay? There's a pro tip right there. So, this is the idea here, this is demands then, Paul's using language that that demands or commands. Now, again, I don't want to fall into the trap of you thinking to yourself, okay, if I do this a lot, God's going to love me more. That doesn't work that way. Or it's going to make me more saved. It doesn't work that way. These things are the consequence of your salvation. This is what the redeemed of Christ naturally do, okay? This is what he's saying. Demands that this action be taken repeatedly as a habit of life, all right? So habit is something that you do over and over and over again without really thinking about it, right? I mean, you think about it a little bit, but you don't think about it a lot. You, you, you get up in the morning, you have routines. You brush your teeth, you put your slippers on, you make a cup of coffee. These things almost occur without you thinking about it. In fact, you can have a cup of coffee in your hand, and you can say, when did I make this? 
How did this get here? So it becomes that way for us. Is that evident in your own life as a habit of life? And so the word dwell means to obviously live in or dwell, but here it means to dwell personally and powerfully, bringing in the same idea of the parallel verb from verse 15, let rule. So we, it, still, it contains that kind of, of punch. So there's, there's some power in it. So it dwells personally and powerfully within you. It's just not kind of there on a surfacey level, but it's really in there in the context of something that you look for and anticipate and want. It's a habit. You love a cup of coffee in the morning, and you love your time in God's Word. You, you love to engage in something that you do on a regular basis, and the idea is that that is the, is the, is the same context for the Word of God, too. Now, I'm going to say, folks, if that is the way it is for you, that makes a huge difference in your life because as this Word of God is richly dwelling within you, what is your mind thinking about? As a man thinks, so he is. So what does your mind begin to become consumed with? Christ. And out of that begins to grow all of this thankfulness that we find in verse 15. Do you see what's going on here? Now, now obviously, that there, there's an engagement in the process. We're, we're just not let, letting go and letting God. We are, we, are, we are engaged in this with the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul here, this idea of dwelling is a, is a passage that he has used in other, other, other passages. The idea of dwelling is used five times in the New Testament, all by Paul and all metaphorically. It describes God by the Holy Spirit residing in the believer. In 2 Corinthians 6.16 6, and Romans 8.11 and 2 Timothy 1.14. And it also can, as it does here, describe faith dwelling in in the believer. So, so the idea that Paul is communicating is that there is a sense in which as we are in the Word of God, the, the, the ambit and the wonder of the faith in which we are resting in Christ is amplified. It grows. It becomes rich within us. And as we see in this passage, Paul says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Within you. And so we have a direct command, the idea being that as it's dwelling within you, it becomes prevalent and preeminent within the assembly, the body of Christ, the church. And a church focused on Christ and his word is a church that glorifies God. A church that does not emphasize the preaching of the Word and the authority of Scripture and make word, the Word predominant, if the church is spending more time singing than preaching, there's a problem. There's a massive problem. And so the Word of Christ here is to dwell within us. It defines an individual experience that flows into a corporate 
experience. What's true of each individual becomes true of the entire church. And ultimately then, what happens is this. Paul, it's really interesting. So as the word of Christ richly dwells within you, the result of that is going to be verse 15, which is the peace of Christ ruling. That can only be the case, right? That can only be the consequence. So the word of Christ dwelling within our midst brings about peace, harmony, and unity. But remember, the peace, the love, the harmony, the unity is based upon an objective word of truth, not our experiences, not our felt needs, nor caving into culture. We come together and we rejoice together because we are the redeemed of Christ, not because we've caved into the woke social justice movements of the day or other trends prevalent in the church. Things that motivate us are predicated upon the word of Christ, not a trend, not a fad, not a movement. This is what's so important. And so, as the word of Christ richly dwells within me, it becomes then the arbiter, the rule of my life. Do you see this? This this is really quite beautiful. And so, we'll continue to unpackage this as we consider what he has to say about it further with the next portion of this passage when he says, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There's a lot left here, folks. There's a lot here. What we understand then is that um, it's also to be rich. Not just there casually, but richly dwelling. So consider this word as well in verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Uh, I'll say something. I'll probably get in trouble for it, but it doesn't matter. Um, I'm concerned. I, I honestly am concerned. And I, this church has done a remarkable job, and I am so grateful for what the Lord has done. But again, if, if your level of engagement with God's word is, is super surfacey, and bottle cap level. And I, I know I made the comment last week about daily bread, those type of things. That's not enough, friend. I'm sorry. That's not enough. You need to be in it. And you need to be reading people who take you into it deep. You need to read, you need to read people that when you read them, you got to read the page again. And that you got to read the page again. Because as you're doing it, that you're exercising your mind and you're stretching that mind muscle and you're working it and it's taking you deeper and deeper and deeper into the things of Christ, which will cause you to marvel and wonder in even a more profound way about what it is that God has done for you in Christ. You're not going to get that with daily bread. I'm sorry. That's mostly psychology. That's mostly self-help. You need the deep, deep richness of the word of Christ. 
that then as it rich that that's richness that's that's something that paul is speaking to here he doesn't want these people engaged in just some surfacey level knowledge no there's a false teacher here who's pretty sharp we got a lot of people attacking the church today that are pretty sharp well-educated people and they're putting a lot of things in front of us that are clever and tricky you better be thinking about it and you're not going to get there and be able to deal with it with your surface level stuff my dad used to talk about bottle cap level theology the depth of a bottle cap you ever seen the bottle cap how deep is it it's not deep at all he's talking about something much more than that and of course one who is consumed with the fact that god has saved them is going to want to know more want to know more and so paul here uses this word that is very important this, this adjective of, of, or this, this adverb of, of richly, of richly, abundantly, and lavishly within us. When God's people live together in fellowship and gather together for worship, the word of Christ must have a prominent and primary place, both in their lives individually and corporately. Christ dwells among his people where his word is anticipated, sought out, welcomed, and allowed to rule. Let. And Christ's own indwelling is enabled through his word preached and taught in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will amplify this. He will bless this. In a church and in individu- individuals within a church and a church that does this. And so we're going to leave off right there today. We'll pick up with the balance of this passage next week, Lord willing. But my challenge to you is to take into consideration, consideration what Paul is doing here. And take this into mind, too, as you assess as you review, as you consider and ponder what is being foisted upon the church today, I will tell you, I am very, very concerned about it. We are facing some very unique challenges. And a church that's going to stand against it is going to be the church that reflects verse 16 of Colossians 3. We need to know what God's word says and what it contains and how to rebut those who are asserting these issues against us today. We must. And the consequence, of course, once we do this, of course, will be people who will say, wait a minute, that's not what God's word says. The Bible doesn't tell me just to to accept whatever is coming down the pike. The Bible tells me to rejoice when justice prevails. My Bible tells me to exalt God when when justice is, is exalted and to proclaim it and to say it and my bible says that i am to openly expose those things which are done in darkness and to to shed the light of the gospel into it i am not supposed to just embrace it and to acquiesce to it that's what my bible says and i know that because it richly dwells within me it is in my house it is seated at my table it is with me all day you know uh, those back in the back in the day, and even in, when we were in Jerusalem, we saw this: the, the rabbis and the guys walking around with the the boxes on their forehead that contained, you know, excerpts of of the Torah and God's word, and it's there, you know, it's right there, and the idea being that it's it's a presence within them and on them. So too for us, we need to let it dwell richly within us. That's a great challenge to us. We have so much in Jesus Christ. We have so much that he has given to us. And I trust that you're resting in his finished work, that you're rejoicing, that you are known by him, and that God's word is significant and meaningful to you. What a blessing it is for us to have it.
Amen to that? Amen. Lord, we love you. Thank you for all that you've provided to us. Thank you for this this very good exhortation today. Thank you for the encouragement, the rebuke, the the correction, the instruction, the admonishment, um, all of it, Lord. Thank you for reminding us of what we have and how much we should treasure it. Forgive us for not allowing your words to dwell within us richly and, and not expressing the reality of that in our relationships with others and our engagement with the culture. Help us, Lord, we pray, to take a stand, to be firm. We rejoice in the fact that that Christ was indeed the embodiment of the Word and, and that we have in Him all that we need and can rest in Him and look to Him. He never failed in these areas. But encourage us, equip us to be better stewards and servants of, of what you've given to us, Lord. And we ask that you would equip us to be salt and light and to stand in the dark day. Give us courage, we pray. And we pray that you would do this through the power of the Holy Spirit. Bless us in the name of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you.